Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. Prolific author John Peel has written novels in universes from Doctor Who to Star Trek to James Bond. John started off writing fan fiction, and as you'll hear, is an advocate for fan fiction as a training ground for fiction writing. He tells me how he made the leap to writing authorized fiction, novels set in existing TV and movie universes, and how he approaches writing assignments and his relationships with editors. We also talk about the unexpected lessons his good friend Terry Nation, the creator of Doctor Who's Daleks, taught him about writing. John and his wife Nan have several chatty lovebirds, as you'll hear in the background. Here's my conversation with John Peel. Welcome to the podcast, John. I'm really excited to hear your story today. Thank you for having me. I am curious to know how you got your creative start. Did you write a lot as a child, or is it something that you came to later, or was there something else? Well, um, yeah, it's the usual route. I, I wrote like crazy as a child. Um, when I was very young, I had a, a very bad case of anemia, so I couldn't play sports or anything. I had to stay in when everybody else went out to play soccer and what have you. Um, so since I was all on my own in the classroom and everything, I used to sit and read and write. And um, pretty much that's how everything started. I, I would just simply write stories. Uh, usually continuations, obviously, of what I was reading. Um, I would add the next chapter or whatever uh, <laughs> in, in what I thought was going to be happening. Um, but yes, that's that's what happened. And then when I got over the anemia problem, I, I just kept going with the writing because I'd gotten so used to doing it and uh, because I really enjoyed it. Was there anybody who encouraged you to keep going? Did you show it to your teachers or any anybody like that? Um, not, not really. The, the, the closest, I remember when I was 11, I had a, a, um, a, a, you know, the, the, the teacher was, um, a Mr. Fielding and he was just amazing in his enthusiasm. I mean, I can remember we, we, for example, we, we, we would read, um, Robinson Crusoe as a class book. And um, he would jump around and make you know all these little things, and he'd act it out. And he used to write um, little plays for us, um, very silly things usually, because of course that's what kids are really enjoy. Um, I remember very clearly we we had one play we were doing um, Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, and. Um, I was one of the 40, and we, we, we had this, he gave us this little song to sing, which was actually the Amble Chorus, but I had no idea at the time. And it was uh, a friend of mine, Chris Cook, and I were, were involved in these things, and it was open, you know, open sesame, we brought a bag of riches, and then bow, and then open sesame, whoops, I've slipped me britches. And <laughs> As a kid, that that was hysterical. So, but he was he was very creative, and as a result of which, I think he fed our creativity. Um, I mean, he didn't actually sit me down and say write stories or anything, but because of his enthusiasm for stories, I think it kind of seeped in, you know, to my life. 
Sure. Good models will do that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Whether they cross into being actual mentors or not, seeing somebody right. else do something gives us permission to do it ourselves. Well, he, he made me realize that creativity can be fun. And that was a, a very important lesson, I think, to learn that you could, that books could be fun, that creativity could be fun. And, you know, just having fun was okay. It was a good thing to do. So, I mean, yes, I, I learned a lot from him in that direction, certainly. Yeah, that's a message we don't hear nearly often enough, too. No, I know. A lot of, a lot of teachers seem to think, oh, well, you know, um, I'll teach them, but it doesn't, they don't have to have any enthusiasm for it. They just have to learn the facts. And the, the fact that he was always, no, 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 you've got to really get into this, that really helped me. And um, later, later on, when I was in um, secondary school, it was not as clear. Um, <laughs> I had a, an English teacher uh, who began as um, Miss Sharp, and then she got married and became Mrs. Newman. And um, she and I used to have terrible fights over poetry interpretation and things like this. And she would say, oh, you know, this, this is what the poet means. And I was like, I would always say, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> terribly, terribly, terribly um, conceited in that sense. Um, hasn't really gone away very much since. Um, but um, we, we would argue. I remember, I remember specifically, there was, we were reading a poem and it was about a train going into a tunnel. And she said, oh, you know, this is a sexual reference. And I was like, no, no, you know, guys just like trains. It's a, it's a guy thing, trains, you know. <laughs> so we used to have all these terrible fights. Um, politely, but, but, you know, we completely disagreed with one another. I think she'd be very surprised to discover I became a, a writer because she was convinced I'd end up being a total idiot. <laughs> I'm laughing in part because I think I had a few conversations like that with one of my English teachers back then, too. Oh, yeah. And, yes. <laughs> you know, if he hears this, he'll probably have a good laugh about it. But, but yeah, mm. I, I'm, I'm reminded of the, the Isaac Asimov very, very short story called The Immortal Bard. Oh, yes. <laughs> where, you know, someone is going on about knowing what what Shakespeare was thinking and, you know, Shakespeare mm -hmm. comes back and sits down in this English professor's class and gets failed. <laughs> and yeah, I don't think you can ever really know exactly what somebody else was thinking when they write something. Oh. You can no, only you take can't. your best guess, which can be fun, but you can't say you actually know. No, no, I don't think so. So we used to disagree happily about it. <laughs> That actually sounds like it could have been a, a fun kind of relationship if you knew that you were going to have the argument, but that you weren't going to, you know, hate each other afterwards or whatever. Right. Um, I, in fact, I, I remember one day um, she would read us you know, short stories in class and she read one one day and I said, oh, that's Ray Bradbury. And she was quite surprised. She said, oh, have you read it? And I said, no. I said, I haven't actually read that one. And she said, well, how did you know it was Ray Bradbury? I said, well, Ray Bradbury, you can't mistake his style. You know, Ray Bradbury is Ray Bradbury. And she was amazed because she had never to that point thought that a science fiction writer could have style, <gasps> a recognizable style. She just thought it was silly 
kids' stuff, you know. And um, she was quite amazed that I recognized a, a Ray Bradbury without actually having read it first. So we we taught each other, I think, in, in some ways. She was she was a, a, a very good teacher in many many ways, um, but we we just clashed over opinions. <laughs> you know, I I think that the best the best student teacher relationships are the ones where both people are learning from each other. Yeah, and it, 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 I think it's very important. It, it's a bit of give and take. You could, I, I mean, it's one of the things I always like is when I'm talking to people, you never know what you may learn. Um, even you know, Especially from people who disagree with you. Mm-hmm. Because quite often, I mean, if you just get people who agree with you, you never learn anything. Your mind doesn't expand at all. Whereas if you find someone who disagrees with you, if you discover they have a good reason for disagreeing with you, maybe you'll learn something from them. Um, I, I have, I know. I mean, people who've said, um, you know, I had an opinion completely different to mine, and I've said, well, why do you think that? And then we, we talk, and then I start seeing it from their perspective. Um, I mean, I remember doing that very clearly with um, with Terry Nation when um, I was working with Terry. And, I, I mean, he, he did a lot of things that I thought were kind of silly. And I, I sort of said, well, you know, why did you do this? And then he would say, well, John, you have to remember, um, especially when you're writing for television, for example, you're not just writing for one person. You're writing for a range. So it's good to give people of different ages and backgrounds something that they might recognize in there somewhere so that you're speaking not just to yourself and not just to one kind of little facet of the audience but you're you know you're speaking to a broader group and um when he said that you know it made me think about it and i realized you know he what he was doing was actually much more sophisticated than i thought he would was doing and um it was interesting to find that sure yeah that's not something that you would necessarily expect exactly yeah I mean, I remember one of the things was um, he came up with a planet name called Iridius uh, because it's a desert world. And I I sort of said, well, that's a bit silly name. And he said, no, 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 John, you have to remember somewhere out there, there's going to be a child watching this story who is going to have learned the word and it'll be a big word for him and it'll be something new. And then if he sees it in a story, it'll bring home to him that things he learns can be used and will be showing, you know, turning up again, <coughs> which um, which I hadn't even thought about. I mean, I just thought, oh, it's a bit of a silly name. But I, I saw, you know, then he explained why he did it, and then it made more sense to me. Um, so I was learning from him, um, you know, why he was doing certain things. And it was um, very instructive. Sounds like it. And I, I want to get back to Terry Nation, but before then, I want to get the the bridge in there of how you went from school into ending up writing. When when did you start to think maybe this was something you could actually make money doing? Ah, well, um, I used to read, I used to write stories and then read them to my um, kid brother and sister at bedtime, 
and they always had a great deal of fun with the stories. They enjoyed them. And um, I thought, well, okay, let, let me try it. And I said, I naively wrote a story and sent it off to uh, Penguin Books. And Penguin wrote back very nicely and sent the story back. And they said, we don't get stories like that. You have to get, you know, you have to come to us through an agent. Um, but if, you know, if you can find an agent to submit it, we'll read your story. Uh, which, of course, I was 17, 18 at the time, I think. And I had no idea how you got a, went around doing this. I mean, it was not something that anyone I had known um, had ever done. So I, I had no clue how to actually get into writing as a job. Um, what I used to do was I, I wrote fan fiction for Doctor Who mostly. And um, that was a good practice. It, it, it's a good way of getting into writing fan fiction, I've always found, because you have to discipline yourself to write the characters that someone else has created and you have to make them so that when other people read the story they can see the characters and they can say yes that's doctor who or yes that's star trek or whatever um but you have, you know you have to have a certain amount of self-control to do this and um i'd been doing this for a while and then they began publishing a magazine in england called doctor who weekly and at a convention, I met the editor, and I got up enough nerve to go up and say, "Look, I've got some ideas for stories. Can I send them to you?" And he was, he said, "Yeah, yeah, okay. I can always do with um, some new stories. Send me, send me a couple, and we'll see." And I sent him um, a little batch of ideas, and he liked them, and he he said, "Okay, let's go with it. You write me the first one up." Um, as as a, a a plot, and he showed me how to do the the outline and everything to write a comic strip. Um, and it was going to be a four page story, so he he explained how to do this and how to do that. And the first one, of course, he had to rewrite rewrite a fair amount to get it in the right format. Because, as I say, I'd never written anything like this before. I'd written stories, but comic stories are a completely different kettle of fish. You know, you you you're really writing for the artist, mm -hmm. so that the artist will get inspired by what you've written and draw the story. Um, so um, I, I managed to do this. I, I ended up doing four uh, backup strips, four-page four backup strips for him. And um, that was incredible for me, um, not just simply selling the, the material, but seeing how an, edit, um, a, an artist would take my impressions, because, I mean, I see what I write as kind of like a little movie in my head or a little TV screen, and I write it down. And, of course, when he gets it, he looks at it, he's seeing something in his own experience from this. So, you know, I would send in the story thinking, oh, this is going to look like this, look, you know, like that. And it doesn't, because the artist <laughs> interprets it his way. So I had a huge amount of fun from that, just seeing how that they took me story and brought it to life um so um that that was really how i got my start with, with those four short stories and um that was about the same time in fact i was moving in the in the process of moving to america from england um so <laughs> i was actually sold stories back to england from america which was peculiar because 
earlier I'd been writing articles for um, a magazine in America, um, which I was sending them from England. So it, I kind of reversed tracks on everything. It was very bizarre. And um, it, it was all, you know, developed from this. It, it was kind of, I, I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just exploring it and experimenting um, constantly at the time. And um, it, it was it was fun and it was scary at the same time. Do so. you think that there's merit or maybe merit is not the right word? I can see where it's really helpful when you want to get started knowing this is what I need to do and these are the kinds of people that I need to talk to and all of that. But right. I can also see where not knowing might free you up to not only experiment but make mistakes and stumble into things that maybe you wouldn't have stumbled into otherwise and i'm wondering you know obviously you only have experience with one side of that that coin as starting out but do you have a, a read on that i think a lot of the time when i began writing i kept stumbling into things Mostly because, as I say, I, I had no clue what I was doing. I was I just knew that I wanted to write, and I wanted to get into it any way I could. So I stumbled in by writing these um, little articles for this American magazine about English TV, and I stumbled again when I came in um, with, with the comic strips. So, I mean, I was really sort of feeling my way, and I... I had nothing to go on. I didn't know any other writers. Um, I had never met any other writers. I, I was doing all of this on my own in a, in a tiny little enclave of my own, I guess. Um, and I kept experimenting and pushing and seeing if I could get people interested. And I was very fortunate at the beginning um, in that I actually found some people who had a certain amount of sympathy for me, um, <laughs> I think. I mean, uh, when, when I was over here, um, I, I wanted to write novels. So I started writing one as a sample, and I sent it into this lady called Olga Litowinski. And Olga worked for... Um, oh, goodness, who did she work for? <laughs> one, one of the major publishers, anyway. And she read the couple of chapters I sent her in the outline and she wrote back to me and said, look, John, um, this isn't right. This isn't going to work as a story. However, there's a germ of a good story in there. So what I need you to do is to take it again and start it again, but do it like this. And she um, encouraged me with this, and I, I did what she suggested and sent her the couple of chapters, and she said, right, you've got it. Let's go with the story. And I was incredibly fortunate because this was before I'd gotten an agent or anything. And, I mean, you can't do that. You, you don't do that because you have to have the agent to go through to, to sell the stories. And Olga just took pity on me, and uh, she thought that I had some a measure of talent and that she was going to foster it. So I, I really lucked out there by doing the whole wrong thing. And then she said, get an agent. <laughs> so um, because I had already got a book sale pending, I actually found an agent 
what happened was I, I looked in the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which lists agents, and I thought, well, everybody's going to start at A. So I went to the back and started from the back. <laughs> and um, I found an, an agent that looked like she was doing, you know, she was handling the kind of material that I like to write. So I wrote to her, and she liked what I wrote and everything, and um, she took me on, and uh, we, she was my agent for... 35 years? Wow. Well, 35 years, I think, you know, quite a long time. Um, and she she always believed in me, which was terrific. I mean, that's what you need is people who believe in you. And um, she she always helped me within that aspect of things. Um, but again, as I say, I was doing everything the wrong way. This is not how you're supposed to become a writer. Um, I took no college classes. I took nothing special for you know writing or anything. I just had that impetus. I wanted to write, and I was determined to so you know to tell stories, and I'd do it whatever way I could think of. So um, it, it came out as I say. I was very fortunate that I found the right people. Um, basically, stumbled across, them, but I was I'm amazingly lucky with it. I, I think that is so key from all of the people that I've spoken to. It makes such a huge difference to have mm -hmm. someone in your corner, whether it's a parent oh, yeah. or a teacher or an agent or, or whoever it is. And yeah. just for, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know, it is incredibly rare to get an editor to write back to you if you don't have an agent. Oh, yeah. It's, it's well nigh on impossible. So that yeah. is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I never quite figured out why she did. But she saw something in it and mm -hmm. um, decided she was going to you know, do something with me. And um, that, that was amazing. And uh, it, as I say, I didn't realize at the time it was anything unusual because I had no idea. It was only later that I realized, wow, how lucky I was to get the right person. Absolutely. And um, I mean, especially in writing, the, the, it's so very, very difficult to get started. Because you, you have to have someone who believes in you and who will, who will help you and guide you. And Olga did that a lot because she, she taught me a lot about writing as I was writing the story for her. I mean, she would say, for example, you keep switching points of view. Stop that. Pick a person. <laughs> stick with them. Um, and things like this. I mean, she would give me very good advice. And uh, at, at one point, she when I finished the book, she said, chapters eight and nine don't work. And I said, ah, what's wrong? And he, she said, they don't work. I said, well, what, 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 what can I do? She said, change them. And I said, but, well, how would you like me to change them? And she said, you're the writer. You figure it out. Don't ask me. Go off and do it. And I went off and I looked at these chapters and she was right. They didn't work in the in the context of the book. So I rewrote the two chapters and sent the new ones to her. And she said, "That's it. You you figured it out." Um, but I mean, she she would not tell me exactly what to do. She would just simply say, "This isn't working. Do it again," kind of thing. So I mean, I learned a lot from her, um, but in odd kind of ways because that, that was the way she was, and. Um, I end, that ended up actually not it didn't turn out to be my first published novel because 
it was going to be in a hardcover, and we we spent about a year and a half working through all of this stuff. So as a result of which, it ended up being my second novel. Um, my my first novel ended up being um, the Chase with Terry Nation. So um, that that kind of that kind of hopped over the first book. <laughs> but again, that was another pure purely accidental thing. Um, which is where Terry Nation comes back in again into the story. Um, I'd been contacted by uh, St. Martin's Press. They were interested in doing a Doctor Who book uh, to cash in on the pop publicity, you know, the, uh, the the show's popularity at the time. It, that was when it had just really started getting big in, in America. And they had these ideas for books and the editor honestly didn't know Doctor Who. So he called me up and he said, look, can I run these ideas past you? And they were terrible. I mean, really awful ideas. And I said, I told him so. And he said, well, we really want to do a Doctor Who book. Can you think of anything we could do? And I said, well, Terry Nation once wrote a book in England back in the 60s. I think it could be updated and you could use that. And they said, Oh, well, okay, great. Can you contact him and see if he's interested? So, <laughs> all right. I, um, I had no idea at the time how to contact him, but I knew someone who knew him. Um, so I, I contacted the person I knew and said, can you ask Terry for me if he'd be interested in talking about you know, doing this book again? And Terry said, through her, okay, sure, give it, give him my phone number and we'll talk. So I called Terry up and told him about this, and he said, well, I'm kind of busy at the minute because he was working on MacGyver on TV at the time, and he said, um, do you think you could do the job of updating it? And I said, yeah, <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> um, then I went, when I read it, it, it I reread the book again, and I realized it would have to be completely rewritten not just simply updated and Terry was like okay well are you okay for that um, so I ended up doing a book with Terry and part way through the book we, while we were working together uh, Target Books contacted him because they were doing the Doctor Who novelizations and Terry didn't like the last couple of ones they'd done of his stories, so he told them that was it, no more. Um, but every, because it was the Daleks that were hugely popular, um, every couple of years they would call him up and say, please, please, Terry, can we do another Dalek story? So while we were doing this book together, they called Terry up and said, please, 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 can we do another Dalek story? And Terry said, yes, you can, on one condition that John Peel writes it. And um, I know nothing about this. The, the, this was going on without me, my knowledge. And um, a couple of days later, he called me up and said to me, um, John, would you like to write a novel? And I said, yeah, sure, why? And he said, well, I told Target Books that you'll do it. <laughs> so... Um, that was how the, the, the Chase novelization came about. He, he completely set the whole thing up. I mean, I had nothing to do with it, even making the decision to do the book. Um, it was entirely Terry. So again, I'd fallen in the right place at the right moment with the right person. And it was, it was purely 
accidental, but um, Terry used to say to me, if an editor asks you, can you write whatever, always say yes. Then go away and panic. (laughs) But then sit down and do it. And um, that's what I did basically with the chase. Um, And I learned a lot from it because, in fact, I took on a lot of other jobs over the years that I wouldn't have considered doing except, you know, what Terry had said reminded me, well, let's try it. I mean, even if it's not something you think you can do, let's try it and see. Uh, I I was contacted one time from a publisher, uh, Workman Publishing, and they wanted to do, they wanted me to do um, a calendar. And I was like, how do you write a calendar? (laughs) (laughs) But I said, you know, you know what, I'll have a go. And I did, once. They asked me if I wanted to do it again the next year. I said, no, no, one (laughs) It drove me crazy, um, but but I would try it uh, because of what Terry had said. You know, give it a go, and I I always did that. If anybody ever asked me, can you know, you want to do this? I always said, sure, let's try it. I mean, what, what can you lose from it? A bit of time, perhaps, and what have you. But you never know what will come from it. Um, and um, I, I've been very fortunate in that way that because I I have that reputation. And um, it, it's gotten me quite a few jobs, actually, um, where people would say, oh, my gosh, we need a book very, very quickly. Who can we get? John. And they would call me up and say, you know, can you do this book in however many days? And um, I, I would always say yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was kind of funny. I did, I did a book one time. Um, the young astronauts, and they needed it in an absolute emergency. They they were doing this series of books, and they'd written book one and book two, and then they decided that actually they needed a book two in between these two they got, um, because they jumped from uh, in the book in book one they get signed up. You know, these kids get signed up as astronauts, and in book Two, they were in space, and they thought we need something in between because they obviously they got to be trained and everything. So they they had to do it very very quickly. And a friend of mine who was doing book four, they asked her if she could do this new book too. And she said, "No, no, I've got this one. I'm doing already. I haven't got time to do it." But John Peel works really quickly. Maybe you should talk to him. So they called me up. And I said, yeah, okay, I can do it. And they said, well, it's got to take place in between book one and book three, the new book three. Um, So it's all got to take place. Basically, the end of book one, they're blasting off into space. And then book, the new book three, they arrive in space. So whatever you write, it's got to go in that gap in between. I said, yeah, yeah, okay. And then they said, and we've already got a cover painting, so you've got to fit that in your story. <laughs> yep, yep, okay. And then I said, and then they said to me, and it's got to be done in like four weeks. Can you manage that? And I said, yep, okay. And then there's a pause, and they're saying, "Are you sure?" 
And I think, yes, I'm sure. And I, I wrote an outline overnight and, and mailed it to them quickly. And um, they they were thankful because I figured out a way of, of resolving everything. Um, so, I mean, I got the, that job because I could literally jump in and just do it very quickly and, and everything. Um, because I'd gotten the reputation of being a reliable person to go to. I mean, it's very good to be a brilliant writer, but it's far better from the publisher's point of view if you're a reliable writer. I remember going in um, to tour books one time, and we were, I was talking to one of the editors there, and uh, we were talking about some series they were doing because they had the books book one had been done and they were ready with book two and book three the um uh, the author had disappeared he'd just gone off somewhere and they couldn't contact him and he was like a year and a half overdue on this book three i mean a year and a half and as you know i'm sure publishers have a schedule they have to keep to which is why it's very important that you um, you can deliver when you when you're supposed to deliver. And um, this guy was just throwing their schedule completely off. Everything the production line was gone because they, they needed the manuscript to be able to do the next stage and everything. And he just vanished. So the editor was saying to me, "He's a really really good writer when he writes, but we will never." ever employ him again never because we can't deal with this i mean we we have to have reliability mm -hmm. and that's why i kept getting jobs because if i promised a story by june you'd have it usually by may um i always like to turn things early if i can because again it makes people very happy with you when they've got a deadline <laughs> if they if you suddenly give them four extra weeks they weren't expecting it makes their job happier. Um, so that's the way I always tried to work with an editor, was give him what he wanted, but preferably a little earlier than he wanted it, so that he had, if there was a problem, he had a few weeks to be able to deal with it. Um, and, um, you know, for, for the duration of my career, that was really what I was aiming to do, is to always make the editor happy. I mean, I hope I make the readers happy, but you, you don't know that. I mean, you can't know that until the book comes out. You can hope it's going to make people very happy, but certainly you'll know whether you make your editor happy or not, because <laughs> he'll tell you, or she will tell you. Um, and that's that's really the way to handle it, I think. You, you, you have to focus on not the audience, not anything else, but the editor. He, you know, that is the one person you're going through. So um, that's the one you really got to, to keep happy. Um, and I, I've always worked in doing that, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds to me, especially since you're able to put things together as quickly as you do, but also because you've mentioned the, you know, coming up with an outline so quickly, it sounds to me like you are much more a plotter than a pantser. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, basically what happens is if people, I always say that the most important thing about any book I write 
is that I have fun. Because if you have fun, you don't get writer's block because you're enjoying yourself. I mean, why would you get writer's block if you're having so much fun? Um, and if I have, if it's something that I can have fun with, I have no problems in coming up with ideas. Uh, and I mean, quite often, in almost all of my cases, an editor will say, can you write me whatever? Uh, and if it's something that I like, I can come up with an idea. Um, I mean, for the whole story, for the whole novel, overnight, um, which, I, which I've done a, a lot of times. But it, it's a matter of it, it's it, as long as it sparks some something in my imagination, I can do this. Uh, I'm, and it's really helpful when you work with, with one editor over several books because they get to know what your imagination is like and everything. Um, I had one editor, especially Craig Walker, uh, who was at Scholastic. And Craig and I got along wonderfully. We 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 had um, we had a great rapport, and he would know how to provoke me into writing a story. Uh, I remember very clearly one day he he um, said to me, "John, can you write me Jane Eyre with dragons?" <laughs> and he knew me, and he knew I would like that concept, and. He, he was exactly right. I wrote the outline overnight, and he loved it, <coughs> and I loved it, and it turned out to be the most popular book I've ever written, um, a story called The Secret of a Dragon Home. And I've had a lot of people say to me that when they read the book, um, generally as a teenager, um, it really, really affected them. They really felt strongly moved by the story which is tremendous i mean i like that i mean i wasn't aiming for that exactly because i was just aiming to tell a, a story that i enjoyed and it turned out that it spoke to them in, in many ways and it's still the most popular book i've written i think not the most best-selling book um those obviously were the doctor who books because they had a built-in audience um but um, it, it was the one that people seem to remember the most and feel the most strongly connected to. And um, it, it was just because, it, as I say, it started when Craig said, can you write me Jane Eyre with dragons? Because he knew what I would say. He knew my, how I would you know, react to this. And this was great because I, I would work with, I worked with Craig a lot Um and um, he was a wonderful, wonderful editor. Uh, a lot of editors interfere. You know, they will say, oh, well, you, you want to write it like this. You should do that, whatever. Uh, Craig never did that. Craig would say, I like that. Go with it. And that will be it. And then we would have a discussion about the story. And then he, he would say, what if you did this? And it would usually be um, a very, very good idea because he was that kind of a person. And he would suggest things. And we would have the most uproarious sessions pitching stories to back and forth to each other. I would come up with an idea. And then he would say, yeah, but what if you do this with it? 
And then we'd say, ah, yeah, okay, good. And then he, he would call in someone from the art department and say, look, we've got this idea going. What do you think we could do about a cover for this? And I would be brought in on all of the angles. Nobody else ever did that. None of my other editors. But with Craig, Craig wanted me to be part of the whole process. So um, that, that was a great thing. And um, it, it, in many ways, writing books is a kind of collaborative effort, even when you're the only author. Because you're working with the editor, mm-hmm. um, and you have to have that rapport with an editor, and um, it, it's it makes things so much easier when you've got a really good editor. And I've been very, very fortunate in that um, I don't know how many editors I've worked with over the years, quite a lot, and I've only ever had one bad ex- one bad editor in the whole bunch. All of the others have been terrific. Um, so again, I've been incredibly fortunate um, that, I, that I've actually gotten to talk to and work with people who understand the way my mind works and go with it. Um, and you know, they're not controlling, they're not, uh, but they are collaborative in that they will come up with ideas and say, "Okay, well, you could probably do that a little easier," because sometimes. You, you don't think things quite right. I remember um, I was doing a, a, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine novel for young adults, and I, I'd um, written them into this terrific situation where they were high above the arcade and everything, in the girders up there and in 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 the heights and everything. And there's this terrible danger that they're going to fall at any moment, and, you know, fall 150 feet to their death kind of thing. And I got this all, all built up. And my editor, Lisa, um, at that point said to me, why don't they just use the transporter and get them down? And I was like, uh, because I never thought. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, that's what a good editor will do. Mm-hmm. So all I had to do was say, um, the previous chapter, I just wrote a line in saying, you know, Captain, the transporters are down. We've got to do some maintenance. And that answered the question. But that was what I needed the editor for, because she saw a big plot hole that I hadn't seen. And that's why it's it's such a wonderful thing when you get editors that you can work with like that, that you can um, you can trust to have your back basically, when you screw up, to tell you, no, 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 we need to correct that. So um, it, it's always been collaborative for me in that sense. I, I've always had that um, that rapport, and it, it's very important. Um, plus, of course, sometimes you come up with ideas that are really not as bright as you think they are, and you need someone to say, no, John, no, 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 John. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it has to be someone you can trust. It has to be someone who can tell you, no, don't do that, and know that you won't get upset with them, um, and know that you won't fight with them or kick and scream or anything. Um, and that's why it's very important to have a, an editor that you trust, because they can do that. They can, they can stop you from making mistakes, hopefully. <laughs> 
think I think we all need to be saved from ourselves from time to time, and that is definitely the job mm-hmm. of a good editor in any context, whether oh, you're yeah. writing fiction or press releases. You still you still need somebody in there. Yeah. So I I wanted to ask you because you mentioned that you essentially started out as a kid writing fan fiction, and you have written in the universes of Doctor Who and Star Trek and James Bond and probably others that are escaping me just at the moment. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, a line between fan fiction, which is done without any kind of copyright permission or anything, basically for the absolute love of it. And what you do when you're writing an actual novel for Doctor Who or James Bond or whatever. And, I'm just curious because fan fiction, just for a start, often gets a bad rap. And, you know, moving from one to the other, I'm curious to know what that what that process is is like. Were you surprised that someone actually wanted you to write what's you know, got a very thin line between it and mm-hmm. fan fiction and actually pay you for it? How does how does yeah. that work as well, like on the technical legal side? Um, I started writing fan fiction. I mean, that's where I basically started most of my uh, fiction writing. And I think, honestly, it's a great way of starting. It's not a great way of spending the rest of your life, but it's a good place to start because you have to learn to discipline yourself to fit in basically somebody else's universe. They've created all the rules, they created the characters and everything, and you have to conform to that. Um, so it's a good way of learning discipline so that when you have the chance to create something, you'll be able to do that and to stay consistent within your own creations. Um, and it, it's a good thing also because you get to a lot of the time, there's the tendency of a writer to put themselves into the into the role of the main character, so that you know Mary Sue stories, basically mm-hmm. they're called, you know, where where you are actually the main character. Whereas um, if you're writing fan fiction, you can't do that exactly. You you can if you're bad, but if you're good. What you do is you have to conform to the, that person's character. So if you're writing a particular doctor, say, let me say, let's say the third doctor, you have to write the character so that people can read it and say, oh yes, that's John Pertwee. I can see it's him and not Colin Baker. You know, this sort of thing. You, you've got to learn to do it right. And it, in that sense, it can be a really good thing. But where it becomes a bad thing is when you don't go any further. Um, you, you can't get stuck in it, but you, it's, a, it's a good place to begin from, certainly. Um, in my case, I went basically almost overnight from writing fan fiction to writing authorized fiction. Um, so it, it was a it was a, a difference in size. I guess, basically, rather than quality, um, in the sense that I was writing a novel rather than a short story, 
and um, it, 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 was a, it was a different kind of feel to it, but it was basically the same kind of thing. I was still writing Doctor Who um, from from the um, from the get go, and um, you, you have to be disciplined about it, but. It, it, it's the same thing. And that was one of the good things about the, the Virgin New Adventures series when the show was off and the New Adventures were, were just filling in the gaps waiting until maybe there would be a new Doctor Who um, was that they took a lot of fan writers and brought them into professional publishing. Um, it was a great field. Uh, because they knew that the, the the fans would know the show and they would know the feel of it, and it gave a lot of people um, their first chance at writing. And a lot of the people who wrote those original Doctor Who novels went on to become professional writers, and this was their start. And that's a, a wonderful thing. So I, I I'm I'm very much in favour of fan fiction. I, I think it's a great idea, it's a great thing, but you can't stay with it. As long as you move on from that, it's a great passage. Um, it, it's a great gateway. So, um, in, in fact, I ended up writing um, authorized fiction in fields that I'd never written in uh, fan fiction of for. Um, simply because I enjoyed it so much. I, I do it. I mean, it is kind of like the same impetus. If, I, if I'm watching a show and I really like it, uh, I, I, I'm always thinking, oh, I'd love to do a book about this, you know, a novel based on this. And now and again, I'll be able to do that. Although I only ever, I only ever chase two, um, two editors to actually ask, can I write in this world? Um, all the others came to me, which was even more encouraging. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I don't have to do the finding. They find me. Um, but I, I, I went, when I did a, a Quantum Leap novel, uh, that was one where I really went, where I went to the editor and said, please, 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 can I do one? <laughs> and uh, because I really loved the show and I, I wanted to write a Quantum Leap novel. And um, the editor, Ginger Buchanan, said to me, oh, yeah, sure, John, you've had enough experience. You know what you're doing. Send me a couple of ideas. And I sent her this wonderful, I, I, it was a brilliant idea. I loved it because I knew nobody would ever do something like this. And my idea was, um, you, you know Quantum Leap, I mm -hmm. hope. Okay. Well, my idea was this. Chapter one, uh, Sam leaps into this cop. And the end of the chapter, he's shot dead. He's killed. And then we switch back to Quantum Leap, you know, the project. And it, because he's been killed, they shut the project down. Everything's a no-go. And um, Al and Sam's wife have to start it up in secret. And then she leaps back to save Sam. And I thought, oh, what a great, I mean, they would never do that. But I thought this was such a great idea. She sleeps back to save her husband without him knowing that it's her, of course. Um, and I thought, and I, I sent her this idea and I said, how about this? And she goes, no, 
we cannot do this. People read these books because they love Sam, and he's not in this one. He's killed in chapter one, and he's saved about two-thirds of the way through the book. He's not easy enough. You've got to do a different story. And I thought it was such a great idea, too, but I would have loved to have done it. I would have uh, loved to have read it. Because you know, I just thought, I, well, when I'm, when I'm asked to do these stories, I usually think, what can I do that nobody else will do? Because, I mean, the obvious stuff anybody will come up with. What I like to try and do is come up with something which is less obvious, something that takes it twists it. When I was when I did my first Star Trek novel, for example, um, <laughs> that was the other the other one that I pitched um, purely because I wanted I loved the show, and it wasn't a Star Trek; it was Alien Nation. Mm. They were doing Alien Nation novels, and um, I I wanted to do one, and they said, "Okay, you can do one." Um, and then the series got cancelled just as we were about to go to contract. So I never actually wrote that. <laughs> but the editor said to me, uh, sorry about that, John. Um, have you ever thought about doing a Star Trek story? <laughs> so I said no, which was true. And, of course, as, as is the case, as they say, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. overnight, I came up, I thought, I was thinking, well, if I did do a Star Trek, what would I do? And I came up with the idea overnight and called him up the next day and said, can I change my answer? <laughs> uh, and <clears throat> he liked the idea. But what I did with the idea was, I thought, what can I do that nobody else will do in Star Trek? And there was one firm rule about writing Star Trek, and that's no magic. Everything has to be scientific. So I thought, right, I want a book with dragons and magicians and everything you can't do in Star Trek, but it has to have a scientific answer at the end. There has to be a, a solid reason why it works like this. So that's what I did. I, I, came, I wanted to do the one thing that was forbidden, magic, and make it work. <clears throat> so he loved it. My editor loved it and bought it immediately um, on that basis. But that was that's kind of how I go about things. I, I like to. Um, it's it's back to what I was saying. I like to have fun because I know if I'm having fun, I will never get writer's block. I will never get up in the morning going, "Oh God, another bloody chapter," you know. <laughs> I, I will get up going, yay, I can't wait to get into this now, you know, ready to type. And I think that's very, very, very important to have an enthusiasm for it. It's always got to be something that makes you feel uplifted so that you've really got that want, <coughs> that desire to write. Because there's nobody watching you. I mean, well, except in something like this, of course. Uh, but nobody's watching me write. Nobody's there standing over me, you know, going, right, right. Um, you have to have that that self-drive. And the best way is if you're really having so much fun, you don't want to stop. I mean, that, that's the best way for me, at least. That's how I enjoy it so much. And that's why I can, enjoy, you know, I can write so much. It's because it's fun. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I can't not 
from my crazy little fangirl heart sit here and think that the part of you that wants to do the thing you're not supposed to do and break the rules <laughs> is the part of the doctor that lives in you. Uh, yes, actually, <laughs> probably is. I hadn't thought about that one, but yes. <laughs> yeah, it's that, that little little bit of rebel that says, yeah. you think I can't do this, but I'm going to <laughs> anyway. Let me show you how. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I hadn't thought about that, but you're probably right. It, it, it's that little little devil inside me saying, let's do this. <laughs> I think any of us who have spent any time you know any especially any significant time watching doctor who have to have that little part that comes out somehow in that kind of way yes yes and um i i think a lot of it goes back to tom baker because he always had that kind of um childlike attitude let's do it what's the worst that could happen you know let's do it <laughs> And um, I, I think that's a good lesson for, for any creative people it is to say, well, let's see what we can do. Let's see how we can stretch it, how we can make it more fun, how we can, you know, keep ourselves interested. Because you, you can, if you're reading a book, you can tell whether the author is actually having fun doing it or whether they're doing it because they've signed a contract and they've got to write it. Um, I mean, you you. You can tell. You can tell that there's that the enthusiasm is either there or it isn't. And I I always want my stories to have that enthusiasm. So fingers crossed. <laughs> I think it always will. I, I agree. I have said many, many times, if you're not having it having fun with it, you're doing it wrong. And the more fun you're having with it, the more fun your readers, writers, viewers, audience of whatever kind is yes. going to have in experiencing whatever it is that you've created. I think that's absolutely true. Oh, yeah. And um, the one thing that I've discovered, having met a lot of the actors involved in these shows, is they are enjoying it. And um they are i mean all you ever had to do was to see john pertwee in action and you would know that this was what he wanted this was his love in his life that tom baker the same they all have that thing and they all had the um the sense to get out once the enthusiasm wasn't quite there anymore when it was becoming a job instead of being also you know huge fun um, and that's why it's a good thing that we've had this turnover of actors for, for Doctor Who, for example, or the various layers of Star Trek, so that you know, each five or seven years they would reinvent themselves by looking at things from a different light. And this, this is good, because the creativity keeps flowing then, and, um, uh, and the enthusiasm. Yeah, it brings a whole new energy into things. Oh, yes. Yeah, very much so, and um, it's it's this you know it's the same for me. I know. I mean, I enjoy things, and uh, people will say, "Oh, John, can you do a story about so and so?" And uh, going back to what Terry had said originally, yes, I can always <laughs> do a story. You know, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, but but then you know you get around to it. it, it you're challenging yourself as well sometimes. Yeah. And um, that's not a bad thing. Not at all. Not at all. Well, 
I cannot imagine a better note on which to end. <laughs> so I think we will, but I have loved this conversation. Really appreciate hearing about your process, which is so very different than mine. So I always find it intriguing to hear how someone else works since well, I'm it, basically kind of... allergic to outlines. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, everybody does things differently, um, but there's always something in common in, in, in parts of it too. I mean, uh, I, I remember I was talking to Joan Vinge one time and I was talking about characters that we create that we just intend to use for like uh, one chapter or something. And then all of a sudden you, you think, well, let's put give him a bit of background. He's got to have a little bit of something to him. And then before you know it, they're in the rest of the book. Because even though they were already supposed to be. And I, I said this to Joan and Joan said, oh, God, John, I do that all the time. <laughs> And so, you know, I, 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 again, as I say, I really didn't know much about what was going on in, in other writers, but it, it, it's, it's fun to see that they often have the same issues that I have. Um, and, and, you know, I talk to them about how they deal with it and things, and it, it's, it's intriguing. It's interesting. It is. There's, there are ways in which we all function differently, but an awful lot more ways, I think, that we all have in common that we don't realize, especially when we're feeling stuck and we think there's something horribly wrong with me. Why did I ever say I wanted to be a writer or a dancer or a painter? What's wrong with me? I should go be, you know, flip burgers or something. And, and it's not true. There's so much more that we have in common yes. than, than we've realized, which I think is probably the most amazing thing about it, that that mm -hmm. process can be so different, but so much the same all at the same time. Yes, exactly. So, well, thank you so much for sharing your time with me today and for all of your insights. It's a fascinating story. Oh, you're quite welcome. I've had a lot of fun, as you can probably tell. <laughs> That's it for this week. My thanks to John Peel for joining me. And of course, I'm grateful to you for listening too. You know, I talk to people all the time who are feeling totally lost, overwhelmed, and stuck creatively. And I know there are lots more of you out there who are feeling the same way. So I made something to help. Check out the link in your podcast app for my creative tune-up kit. It's 37 bucks, super affordable, and it's full of my favorite coaching tools to help you rediscover your creative self and make progress fast. I would love to get it into your hands so that you can get unstuck and create beautiful things this year. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. 